I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Macro Data Refiners. I'm Alan Ash, your host for Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. No time to chat. The gloves are off and the skirmish is underway. Spurred on by the rebellious ideas of firebrand Rick and Hale, Macro Data Refinement Department Chief Mark S. is becoming almost as hard to handle as his feisty girlfriend, Helly R. Oops, did I say girlfriend? I meant co-worker, Helly R., on the outside, Grainer thinks he's found the source of Petey's reintegration. If he's right, she's holed up at Mark's old college in Gans. Howdy Mark takes a long overdue phone call, which also leads him to his old college. Meanwhile, on the severed floor, there just might be some self-reporting. We'll find out if Baby Goats is code for sex with Mark S. And the big story, with hallway privileges on the line, it's become a battle of wills as two formidable adversaries face off in a game of strategy. On one side, the tough-as-nails Harmony Cobell. On the other, the formerly milk-toast Mark S. Who will win? It's time to find out. Refiners, open the file named Hide and Seek. This episode was written by Amanda Overton, and because he might have some issues with letting go, also written by series creator Dan Erickson. Both were assisted by stalwart staff writer Anna Oyang Munch. This was directed by Aoife McArdle, and a quick aside, Apple TV Plus is running webpage sides promoting severance. Many of them contain a subline that says, directed by Ben Stiller. Let's make sure credit is given where credit is due. This is Aoife's third of three episodes she directed in the middle of the nine-episode run. I don't know it for a fact, but I'm pretty sure Ben Stiller didn't have anything to do with those promos. This episode was first released by Apple TV Plus on March 18th of 2022. As we fade up on our cold open, you need to grab a cup of coffee and relax for a moment, refiners. This is the scene featuring Cobell's Shrine to Cure. There is so much information revealed in this scene, it's like a prime rib buffet in Vegas. Or I'm sorry, Innies, I mean it's like getting two bonus tokens at the vending machine. Either way, we're going to be here a while. First off, let's talk about Pigtail Cobell. We met her the other night when she was spying on Mark. This is not hard-nosed, severed-floor Cobell. It's also not matronly Mrs. Selvig. This is an in-between character who's given her own space and personality. We find Pigtail Cobell doing a craft project. She's turning Petey's severance chip into a necklace. There's a theory out there that says Lumen wanted this chip back so badly because it contained all of Petey's memories from his time on the severed floor. Even though what we're talking about is magical science, I really don't see the chip as a container. It's just not big enough, for one thing. Memory and data storage requires space, no matter how advanced your storage media. I think the chip acts as more of a switch, partitioning off a segment of the severed patient's brain. The memories stored there are only allowed through by the chip when it's switched to any. This would be analogous to partitioning a hard drive. 
If the brain is one big hard drive, I think the severance chip is creating secure partitions which can contain separate information. Since whatever they did during reintegration allowed Petey to access both sets of memories, I think both timelines were stored in his gray matter, not on the chip. I do think it's possible the severance chip formats any memories in the brain differently than the rest of the brain. This would explain why those memories don't seem to integrate so well. It would also explain why any's can dip into the subconscious when dreaming. If their any persona were entirely contained within the chip, I don't think they would have subconscious images bleeding over into their any dreams. In the background, as Cobell is using her needle-nose pliers, two primitive ragdolls can be seen sitting on the bed. One is most definitely Keir Egan. The other seems to be a young girl, possibly a young Harmony Cobell. In Andrew Baseman's photos, he revealed another area of this room we don't get to see. It's a fully stocked craft area with a sewing machine and a workbench. It never made it on camera, but this craft bench is where Cobell makes these miniatures. Cabell's phone buzzes. Crano. We ran the data from Kilmer's head like you asked. They found the signature of the console used to hack the chip. It belongs to Lumen. I think it's traceable to Rogabi. Rogabi. Yeah, she cracked reintegration. I'll find her. The call fades away as Cabell lets the phone fall from her ear. She needs strength. She needs spiritual sustenance. It's time to commune with Kier. Before we turn to the Kier Shrine, let's check out the sleeping arrangements. The bedroom is either orphanage or schoolgirl chic. The bed is a very institutional-looking metal frame twin. Over the bed is a stark bare fluorescent tube light. Above the light is a sampler. It's the nine principles, but this version contains an addition. Instead of just the nine words, the sampler gives us a line about each. The statements are set up with a counter to one of the principles. Each phrase is also constructed so it marginalizes the speaker. The speaker is weak. The weakness is corrected when Kier comes along and provides the necessary principle. They read as follows. I was blind till you gave me vision. I was languid till you gave me verve. I was simple till you gave me wit. I was peevish till you gave me cheer. I was vain till you gave me humility. I was cruel till you gave me benevolence. I was gawkish till you gave me nimbleness. I was false till you gave me probity. I was dim till you gave me wiles. And there's one additional line we haven't seen before. I was me till you gave me you. Each line uses the word T-I-L-L, -L, and each principal word is slightly larger and in a different thread color than the rest of the line. To the left of Cobell's minimalist bed is an antique washstand with a white porcelain bowl and pitcher set. The pitcher and bowl was used as a sink before indoor plumbing. It was a place to wash up before bed. To the right of Cobell's bed is a small wooden stool. Sitting on the stool are a pair of the shoes she wore as a schoolgirl. In his set decor interview, Andrew Baseman said he considers himself a maximalist when it comes to set decoration. A maximalist working on a minimalist show like Severance has to find outlets for his creativity. Baseman said he really got to indulge himself in two places. Here in Cobell's orphanage-like sleeping quarters with her crazy stuffed shrine 
and in Kier's home in the wing of perpetuity. Baseman provided set decor with some fantastic on-set photos of this space and the Kier Shrine. Baseman said many of the details included in this room never made it to the screen, but were there to help inform the character. I'll be describing what's in the shrine based on his photos and descriptions. You might not be able to see everything in a freeze frame. You probably should seek out Andrew Baseman's set decor interview where you can see the pictures for yourself. After Cobell hangs up from Grainer, she goes to a corner of her room opposite the bed. Along the wall are banners, like what a child might make as a class project in Bible school. Each banner has one of the nine principal words at the top. As Cobell kneels, we can clearly see benevolence and vision. I'm guessing the other seven are along the wall as well. Cobell kneels in front of what is actually a wooden storage shed from Home Depot. It's been divided into two levels with a shelf. Candlelight is being used on both levels. Starting on the bottom, there's a detailed reproduction of Kier's house, the one we saw full-sized in the Wing of Perpetuity. Sitting around the model house are about a dozen candles, a jar full of long kitchen matches, a plush goat about the size of a beanie baby, and two jars of marbles. On the back wall of the lower compartment are two framed pictures of Kier's house. They seem to be from two different eras. One has more visible landscaping and trees around it. There seems to be some attraction to Kier's house, at least for Cobell. Two framed plaques also hang on the back wall of the lower compartment. Both are from the Myrtle Egan School for Girls. You may remember we kind of met Myrtle in the Wing of Perpetuity. She was the first female CEO at Lumen, taking over from Ambrose in 1941. Myrtle was the one who Herb said knew she would be CEO from when she was a child. It almost makes me wish I remembered my own childhood. As a student at the Myrtle Egan School for Girls, one Harmony Cobell was recognized as being most observant. Harmony was also acknowledged for best use of mealtime condiments. We'll also see she was named Best Girl. To the right of the two plaques is a poster. It's not mounted or framed, just tacked up with a pushpin. It has a very old and dated look to it, but I don't think it's quite as old as we're being led to believe. The header says, A Visual Depiction of the Work-Life Balance. The copy goes into a rap about imagining yourself as a seesaw. To one side are your work responsibilities, to the other your personal baggage, as they call it. You're told you might snap beneath the weight of it all. The picture at the bottom shows two young girls in early 20th century dresses. They've been playing on a seesaw, but the board snapped in the middle. The call to action says, ask your supervisor if the severance procedure is right for you. Whoa. How long has Lumen been sticking stuff in people's brains? I don't think quite as long as this poster wants us to believe. There are a couple of things that don't fit. There's a pale pink Lumen logo in the lower right corner of the poster. It's the modern logo, like the one we see on the front of the building. We do see older Lumen logos in other parts of this shrine. Also, one of the items listed under personal baggage is aerobics, meaning your workout. The term aerobics wasn't coined until 1966. It wasn't widely used until the developer published a book called Aerobics in 1968. By the mid to late 1970s, 
Aerobics was gaining ground as a popular workout regimen, but not in the 20s or 30s like this poster would have us believe. I don't think this poster is any older than the late 1970s. Let's move to the upper area of the shrine where things really get weird. According to Baseman, we're looking at the following items in the upper half of Cobell's Cure Shrine. Miniature paper mache heads of the four tempers. She's kind of got one in each quadrant. Also, vials of Kier's blood and Kier's nail clippings. Getting weird on us, Harmony. But if you were wanting to make a clone of Kier, here's some DNA to get you started. There are dolls made from clothespins in the images of Kier, Cobell's mother, and Cobell is a little girl. There are several ribbons and awards, a small pamphlet titled Probity, study cards for probity, verve, and wit, antique advertisements for lumen products, and in the middle of it all, a piercing picture of Kier staring right at us. The red and white ribbon in the upper left of the Kier picture is a pin from M.E., the Myrtle Egan School for Girls. It's not for anything specific, but it does list the nine principles around the edge. A newspaper article is pinned to the upper right corner of the upper section. It describes a new lumen implant designed to aid in maintaining the work-life balance. It's being reported in the Cure Chronicle, but the paper was 20 cents less than it is today, so this is from a while ago, possibly in the late 70s or early 80s, which would jibe with what I think is the actual date on the poster. The ticket tucked in the lower right corner of Kier's picture is admission to the annual Kiernival. The graphics on this one do look older. It promises food, drink, games, and oddities. Admits one. I've heard rumblings on the Severance Discord about a possible planned Kiernival for Severance fans. I'll keep you posted if I learn any details. Coiled in the bottom of the upper section is one of the most speculated about items in the shrine. It looks like either a breathing tube or a feeding tube. Attached to it is a typed wristband containing the name Charlotte Cobell with a birth date of March 17th, 1944. Could Charlotte be Harmony's mother? Did Lumen possibly do something to Charlotte? At the end of the Lexington letter, we can see an internal note where the editor tells his reporter they should stay away from the Peggy Kincaid story. He reminds her about an incident with the Nashville Tribune. He said the Tribune had a well-sourced story ready to go about Lumen and what he called their, quote, feeding tube devices. The Nashville paper got sued into bankruptcy and folded six months after publishing the story. Could Charlotte Cobell somehow have been harmed or killed by a Lumen feeding tube? Could her daughter Harmony, a product of the Myrtle Egan School for Girls and a devoted acolyte of Kier, be seeking revenge against the company founded by the man she's sworn her life to? If the character of Cobell weren't already interesting enough, this possible twist vaults her to a whole new level. The tube is connected to what looks like a mask that would go over both nose and mouth. There is a headband attached to the mask. Harmony kneels in front of the shrine and begins to recite something. Tame in me the tempers for that I may serve thee evermore. We get close-ups throughout the shrine as she's speaking. A close-up of a smiling young girl in a school uniform. Most certainly it's Harmony. 
A close-up of one of those old-timey Lumen logos for Lumen Industries, makers of high-quality pharmaceutical interventions. The address is shown is 345 East Main Street in Kier, PE. So maybe this is the location of the world headquarters. Place in me the values, nine, that I may feel thy touch divine. As Harmony concludes her catechism to Kier, we hear the music swell. The theme begins. Take a few moments to collect yourselves, refiners. Maybe go wash your hands. I'll talk to you on the other side. We come back from the credit sequence in Mark's basement. His telltale heart has become too much to take. He decides to do something about it before he's driven mad. You know, like the guy in the story. Mark goes directly to the sleeping bag box and paws through it. There's a moment where he can't seem to find it. Could Harmony have heard the buzz while snooping and nabbed it? Nope, there it is. Mark looks at the long list of attempted calls from a blocked number. Cut to Mark getting in his car. It's time to head to work. There's an aerial shot of the street as Mark's car pulls out. He suddenly throws it in reverse. Mark's trash bin is out. Doesn't it seem like his trash bin is always out? First time we heard about the bins was in the first episode. We learned recycling was definitely on Saturday and trash for some reason was on Sunday. He talked to Mrs. Selvig about it all weekend. At the time, I thought weekend trash service seemed weird. Maybe somebody else thought the same thing and schedules have changed. Mark rips the amazingly long-lasting battery out of the flip phone, then whips both phone and battery into the slightly open lid of the trash bin. If he really threw that, kudos to Adam Scott. It seems like a pretty amazing throw. He might be closer to it than he looks, but I don't think so. They did have to rack focus to get the can in the shot. He whips both pieces right into the can and doesn't seem impressed at all by it. If I'd have made that shot, there'd have been a moment of celebration. Nine out of ten throws, I know I'd have bounced it off the lip of the can. Then I'd have to put the car in park, get out, pick up the phone... Mark roars off, trying to convince himself he's doing the right thing. Cut to a shot of the transistor water tower with the Lumen Water Drop logo on it. We know we're at Lumen, but the next cut is to what looks like a fern or a palm frond in the foreground. Hmm, there's movement in the blurred-out background of the shot. We cut to a point-of-view shot from across a room full of plants. Irv is being ushered into the room by Bert. This has to be amazing for Irv. Innies never get to experience anything we would consider outside or nature. Aside from the tree in the wellness center, this is the only other greenery we've encountered on the entire severed floor. What is this place? You found this? A while back. A longer shot reveals a forest of fronds and ferns. The lighting is nothing more than inset fluorescent strips. There's an air vent up high in the wall. Bert says sometimes he comes here alone, just him. No, I'm going to show it to you. It's beautiful. It's Eden. It's a secret garden. It could be just for us. A secret place. Finally. This sounds wonderful, but really, how secret is anything at Lumen, especially anything on the severed floor? 
As Harmony said last time... The surest way to tame a prisoner is to let him believe he's free. Herb tells Bert his O&D colleagues are very nice, but... Always around. Yes. Exactly. The two men are getting closer. Bert reaches out and grabs Herb's hand. Is this okay? Where exactly is this room? In the background, hallways are visible and there are windows in the doors right behind them. Bert and Irv are getting closer to each other. Bert's looking for loopholes in the handbook. He says it doesn't specifically prohibit lip-to-lip contact. Well, no, but Irv is concerned about the bigger picture. It does discourage romantic fraternization. This can't be romantic, though. The framing on this shot is fantastic. The vegetation is providing a frame for the couple. The camera starts a slow zoom in as they get closer and closer and cue the kiss. I'm truly sorry. I'm just not ready. Irv presses his forehead to Bert's. They're as close as they can be without lip-to-lip contact. This is a big step for Irving and... It would be going against Kier. I'm, I'm sorry. It's fine. Just stay. Stay. Here with me. Juxtaposed against the lush greenery is a cut to a wintry sky. A church steeple is visible through the trees. The woman walking down the stairs with the baby strapped to her front is Devon. Last we saw Devin, she and Rickon were holed up at the Demona Birthing Center with a pan full of kelp and a baby on the way. Mark, say a secret, quickly. Devin is talking to new baby Eleanor. Now we're going to go home and see if you're going to eat. Yes. Key plot point being revealed. Eleanor is not latching. Hey, is that the top of the Worth Street Bridge just a couple of blocks over? Wow, Kier is a small town. To prove the point, Devin looks down the hill to see the richest woman in baby camp. Devin waves. Ah! The woman, who we know is Gabby Arteta, turns at the noise. Gabby also has a baby strapped to her front. There is no sign of recognition. Devin keeps waving, but Gabby turns away. Devin decides to approach. She shared coffee with this woman hours before they each delivered a baby. That's a bond, isn't it? Looks like they both made it through. Gabby says hello, but you can easily see her confusion. Devin, we're in the retreat. I accosted you for your coffee. Still nothing from Gabby. Devin says he's beautiful as she pats Gabby's baby. He looks like a William. Which is what Gabby said she was going to name him when they met at the retreat. His name's Bradley, actually. First time through, I did get this one. As soon as Devin waved and Gabby blew her off, I thought, this woman is severed. I wasn't sure how she managed to get one that works off the severed floor, but she's severed. Think about that. You have one consciousness, an any, who the only time they are awakened is to suffer through the labor and delivery of a child. This any is then shut off until the next time Gabby is pregnant and ready to deliver. This consciousness doesn't carry the child. They don't get to care for the child. They only have the child. Now, consider the existential question. Is it immoral to subject a fully formed consciousness to this kind of torture every few years? Or is it a great idea to offload the pain and trauma of childbirth to a part of your brain where you won't remember it? In an interview, Dan Erickson said, It's been fun to ask the really big questions. I think this would be one of them. 
Hey, here comes Hubby. Devin didn't meet him at the retreat. Hi, Angelo Arteta. Big smile, a handshake. No surprise, this is your senator. Congratulations there. Oh, thank you. Angelo wonders if the two women know each other. Devin said they met at the birthing cottages. Gabby nods, but she's still looking confused. Angelo realizes what's happening. Nice to meet you too, Devin. Yeah, you too. Angelo Arteta is being played by Ethan Flower. Ethan has a complicated biography. He was born in Massachusetts, then adopted at age four by a British man named Edward Fordham Flower. The Flower family had deep ties to the British theater. They founded a brewery in 1830 in Shakespeare's home of Stratford-on-Avon. Later, the family donated the land where the first Shakespeare Memorial Theater would be built. Ethan was trained at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. His first professional play was at age 12 in a cast that included Cicely Tyson. Ethan has 35 performer credits on his IMDb profile dating back to 1992. After watching this exchange in the park, I'm kind of wondering, didn't Gabby know she got switched off? Surely she didn't just come to one day with a new baby in the house. She really needs to get better at covering for things her innie experienced for her. There's a huge, painful, awkward silence. Wow, Kazal. Angelo turns to Gabby and says they should go. There are some awkward goodbyes as the Artetas walk away. What in the fuckity fuck? Hey, the baby. Sorry. As Devin continues to stare after the retreating Arteta family, we can hear Rickon's voice taking us into a transition. There's a dissolve into another page of the you you are. What does camaraderie mean? Most linguists agree it comes from the Latin camera. This one line is the only thing Rickon gets right about his definition of camaraderie. It is true the root is from the Latin camera. After that, come on, Rickon, it's like the World War I thing. To ancient peoples, a camera was not a device for taking photographs. A camera like we know it has only been around since the early 1800s. A camera in Latin meant a chamber. This leads to the French camarade, C-A-M-A-R-A-D-E. It means one who shares the same room or a close companion. You can see the derivation in the Spanish camarada for chambermate. From there, we get the English comrade. Camaraderie, the way Rickon is spelling it, first appeared in English usage in 1840. It was considered a derivation from the French word which happened to be spelled the same way. We do that a lot when we steal from the French. Rickon expands on his entirely incorrect camera connection and runs with it. Which means a device used to take a photograph. And of course, the best photographs are in groups of happy friends who love each other deeply. I caught a fun little detail here. They edited Rickon. If you read down through the text they show us of this page, it says the best photographs are not of individuals, but of groups. In the audio and in the closed captioning, they cut out the phrase not of individuals and the word but, so we're left with the best photographs are edit of groups. Listen to the clip again. And of course, the best photographs are of groups of happy friends who love each other deeply. It sounds like Michael Chernus may have read it, but it was cut out later. Not sure why, a time thing, maybe. 
Mark is sitting on the floor of the storeroom as he reads these dumb but revolutionary thoughts. Ricken then presents his definition of camaraderie. It's standing together in hard times. It's recognizing a common struggle in another person and reaching out to offer them a loving hand. According to Merriam-Webster, camaraderie is a spirit of friendly good fellowship. As often as we're down on the severed floor, we really don't see all that much work happening. Here we find Mark reading in the storeroom. We cut from him not working in the storeroom to all four macrodats not working in the kitchenette. It sounds like Irv is hyping a return to O&D, so that would mean more not working. He wants to go immediately, today, which leads us right into another installment of The Irving and Dylan Show. Someone's eager to fraternize. Fraternization has nothing to do with it. This could be the start of us uniting the departments, the way Kia always intended. Maybe his ghost can officiate your wedding. This is inappropriate workplace commentary, and I'm self-reporting you. You're reporting me to yourself. (laughs) I love those guys. Mark tries to get the discussion back on track. Okay, you said they were making things? Yes, in some kind of machines. We didn't ask what. The machines appear to be industrial 3D printers. Irv would have no way of knowing anything about them. 3D printers are some pretty modern and very digital tech. Dylan's got a theory about what those dirty O&D animals might be producing. It's the clubs they murder those goats with. Helly tells him to shut up. Shut up. She thinks Irving's right. O&D is the next piece of this. Helly's ready to try to map the whole floor. To be clear, I do not approve of mapping. Well, of course not. It would go against the word of Kier, but so does his rendezvous with Bert, which puts Irv on some pretty thin ice. How about we don't call it mapping? What if we go on another mental health walk? Could be fun. Mark's earlier rebellious streak seems to have cooled. What? I don't know. I mean, we, we, we still have a lot of work to do, so... This from the guy who spent most of the morning reading Contraband. He trails off. Helly fixes him with a gaze. All right. The work is mysterious and important. There is a very strong couple vibe happening between these two. Helly could not be cuter, giving Mark a hard time. That's good. That sounds just like me. <laughs> she continues to mimic Mark as she leaves, sealing her lock on the title of cutest any girlfriend ever. Back to work, slackers. And as she clears the door of the kitchenette, she turns with one final... Praise care. The cuteness and undeniable connection between these two did not go unnoticed. Hey, fraternizing too? Mark stammers and tries to cover. He claims it's nothing. He's merely taking his employees' requests seriously. Dylan has the look of a kid in junior high who's just realized his best friend has a girlfriend. He then adds a phrase to the lexicon, which I think goes right up there with eager lemur. Look at you, all dewy mouth. So dewy means moist, wet. The term dewy-eyed, hyphenated, is recognized as a real word, although it's kind of new. Dewey-eyed was first used in print in 1938. Dewey-eyed literally means you're on the verge of tears and there's a glint of moisture in your eyes. Figuratively, according to Merriam-Webster, dewey-eyed means innocent and trusting. Dewey-mouthed does not seem to exist outside of Dylan's use here on the severed floor. I did find a painting titled Dewey Mouth being offered by the Marmont Hill Gallery. It's a close-up of an isolated female mouth wearing a lot of lipstick. The lipstick is dripping from the lower lip. 
A 24-inch by 24-inch framed print of Dewey Mouth is available for $263. In the wake of Helly's departure, Mark is sitting there grinning like an idiot. You never smile at me. Remember what Petey said about feeling the hurt down there? Mark's outie troubles may be influencing his innie persona without him even knowing it. Helly seems to be taking away some of that pain. Irv agrees with Dylan when it comes to smiling. He's right, Mark. You are sparing with the facial encouragements. Mark claims he smiles all the time. No, he really doesn't. This oh-so-important conversation is interrupted by a voice from off-camera. Hey there. Oops, boss caught him. There's a cut to his smiling milkshake. What are you all talking about? The boys are stymied by this question. Oh, uh, uh just, uh, we're dis- discussing the... Yes, uh, Mrs., uh... Mrs. Casey? Miss Casey. Yes. Miss Casey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, Mark realizes Miss Casey hasn't returned to watch Helly. Wait, where is she? We hear a voiceover from Cobell taking us into the transition. Before we cut to Cobell's office, a quick aside. I love this cast. Every character is sharp and fun to watch, and I love hanging out with all of them. But, gotta admit, I do find myself getting even more excited when I see either Britt Lauer or Tramel Tillman on screen. They are so entertaining and so electric and have created such amazing characters, I could watch them all day long. Okay, enough with the sappy fanboy stuff. On to Cobell's office. Surprise, surprise. She's not happy about something. Part-time innies may not be as socialized and sophisticated as yourself, but they still must be held accountable for their actions. Uh Uh-oh, sounds like Ms. Casey got in trouble for failing to keep track of Helly. Because I snuck Helly out. Mark knows what this means for Ms. Casey. I mean, if anyone should be in the break room, it's me. Cobell pauses when Mark offers himself up to the break room. She says a single word. Uh, valiance. We don't hear this one very often in modern speech. Valiance is related to the more common valiant, as in a valiant knight. Anyone who exhibits valiance is said to possess valor or bravery. Valiance is a real word, but it's so uncommon a term here in my word processor, it's being underlined like it's a misspelling. Cobell refers to valiance as not a core principle. That's sweet. Hmm, not a core principle. So maybe it's some kind of a secondary principle? A product of the Myrtle Egan School for Girls would most certainly know all about core, primary, secondary, even tertiary principles of cure if they exist. Cobell slips into her low and eerie, wondering voice. She asks who Valiant Mark won't go to the break room for. She's just a wellness counselor, Mark. Well, and she's also your dead wife, but you don't remember that. Is Mark possibly treating Ms. Casey differently because she is his wife? He did pretty much run away from her yesterday when he was out with Helly, so maybe not. I'm sure Cobell is curious. Let's pause for a minute so I can drop in a couple of crazy theories and some wild speculation. What if the Ms. Casey we've met is not Gemma's consciousness, but merely the reanimated body of Gemma Scout hosting a consciousness that's being built from scratch? This would explain why she was given an entirely new name and is known only by a last name, where the rest of the severed employees are known by first name, last initial. Perhaps Ms. Casey's mind was completely wiped of any Gemma Scout memories. The newly reanimated Ms. Casey is now being retrained as a part-time innie. Meanwhile, Gemma's consciousness wasn't destroyed. Oh no, dear refiner, 
According to one theory I found, it was transferred to one of the baby goats. I didn't say these were good theories, but they certainly are crazy. Something I've noticed about fan theories, they always seem to be long on the what, with very little attention paid to the why. In this case, why would you want a former human consciousness stored in the head of a goat? If this theory turns out to be accurate, my hand will be raised. There will be questions. There's also this new term, part-time any. We aren't given a definition, but who cares? There's a ton of wild speculation on the internet about what this means. And any that arrives from the outside, the surface, and works for eight hours, then returns to the surface, must be considered full-time. The macrodats are all full-time. A part-time any, like Ms. Casey, is a person who is severed, but seems to only be activated when they are needed. Otherwise, as Ms. Casey will tell Mark later, she says she sleeps. I don't know how she knows she's sleeping, but those seem to be her two states of existence. Sleep, punctuated by a few hours of activity on the severed floor, then back to sleep. There's no Audi, just any, and then sleep. Part-time innies might be Petey's people who never leave. As we've already discussed, Ms. Casey doesn't have a key card, so she's not taking the elevator after work. This theory does make sense. If Lumen is experimenting with reanimating the dead, it wouldn't be a good idea to let them go out into the world. In the Audi world, they're dead. They can't all of a sudden show up without a lot of big questions to answer. Mark thinks this is all being blown out of proportion. He took Kelly for a walk, nothing more. I mean, I'm allowed to do that. Cobell isn't buying it. Just a walk. Yeah. Cobell whips the tiny black and white monitor on her desk around so Mark can see it. A recording of Mark and Helly from yesterday in one of the other departments is visible. This is giving Mark a bit of a glimpse regarding the security cameras. They are everywhere. Cobell wants to know why Mark and Helly were sniffing around other departments while macro data refining is falling behind on quota. Mark's sticking with his mental health walk excuse. She almost died. Cobell says it isn't Mark's job to play nursemaid to every new refiner. This phrasing kind of poked the pinata. Okay, so what is my job? This catches Cobell off guard. Are you really asking me that? Mark says, yes, what is it they're actually doing here? He wants nuts and bolts specifics. This sets up another great Cobell outburst. We had no after the botched intake interview. Then there was the mug whipped at Mark's head. Now we get the Cobell response to, what do we do here? We surf gear! You child! Wow. Patricia Arquette is fiery. She comes right through the screen at you. If Kier says to sort the scary numbers, you sort the scary numbers and stop asking questions. Serve Kier and shut up, you mouthy macrodat. And until you get that through your mildewed little brain and hit quota, MDR's hallway privileges are hereby revoked. Okay, that hurt. No more mental health walks, no more mapping the floor, no more lunchtime jaunts to O&D. This is bad, very bad, and Mount Cobell is still erupting. So get your little ass back to your desk and stay there until you're told to move. The reverse to Mark is a close-up on his face. His lips are pursed and he's so mad he's shaking. But what can he do? 
His superior, the person who largely controls his fate down here on the severed floor, has made a pronouncement. Surely by the rules, Mr. Department Chief Mark S. is going to heed his superior, right? We serve care! We cut to a close-up of a hand doing a sketch on a piece of lumen notepaper. The sketch is of a small desk lamp with some great shading. When I first saw it, it reminded me of Luxo Jr., the swing-arm desk lamp who's the mascot for Pixar Animation Studios. There is a connection, at least in my brain. Pixar was a spinoff from Lucasfilms. In 1986, a controlling number of shares of Pixar were purchased by Apple founder and former, but also future, Apple CEO Steve Jobs. Jobs had just been pushed out of Apple in 1985. Under Jobs' leadership, Pixar would go on to produce the first fully computer-animated movie in 1995 when they gave the world Toy Story. Is this doodle a little nod to both Jobs and Apple from a show on Apple TV Plus? Or is it just a lamp because Lumen is derived from the term for light? Eh, the Pixar connection is fun to think about, but it's probably the light thing. We find Helly is the artiste behind the desk lamp doodle. Helly is most certainly not working, but Dylan seems to be refining as he talks to her from the other cubicle. Goddamn tragedy for the ages. MDR will mourn the will they won't the energy shared by Miss Casey and myself. It's just after 10.30 a.m. Dylan says he chose the shirt he's wearing because he wanted to impress Ms. Casey. When you picked that shirt this morning, you didn't know she existed. Mm, yeah, okay, maybe. But what if true love transcends severance? You think so? No. There's a pause as Helly continues to work on her doodle. What about you and Mark? Helly's head shoots up hilariously. <laughs> what? It's the guilty what of a person who's been caught but doesn't want to admit it. Dylan wants to know if she enjoyed sneaking off with Mark the other day. Then he says... Baby goats? With a very pointed inflection. Dylan's horndog brain is spinning out of control. Kelly wants to know why he said it like that. Are you implying that baby goats is code for sex with Mark S? Well, yeah. Dylan nods and kind of mumbles in the affirmative. <coughs> Helly's shocked, but doesn't directly answer the question. Wow. Is, is baby goats code for sex with Mark S? We weren't with them the whole time yesterday, but I don't think anything happened. If it did, I'd bet Cobell has a video of it somewhere on her computer. Helly assures him nothing happened. No, they were actual goats. Why would we call it that? Dylan gives her an I believe you, but he doesn't believe her. Mark S. arrives. He's definitely not smiling now. He tells them about Ms. Casey winding up in the break room after yesterday's little adventure. Shit. Is that because of us? Uh, yeah, but you haven't heard the worst of it yet. And we're not allowed in the outer hallways anymore till we hit quota. Mark's even-keeled demeanor is being tested both as an innie and an outie. In a rare display of anger, he kind of loses it. So, no more interdepartmental visits! He specifically directs this comment to Irv. Are you serious? Irv is speechless. There's a close-up on his face that's heartbreaking. This means no more visits to Bert. Irving takes full blame, even though Mark and Helly were the ones exploring the furthest reaches of the severed floor. I've been setting a bad example as the senior most refiner. Mark's had enough of this. You can see him making an important decision. Which way did you say it was to O&D? Booyah! Mark the Rebel emerges. The music begins to swell. We get reaction shots from both Helly and Dylan. Cut to the most badass group of macrodatch you're ever likely to see roaming the halls of the severed floor. 
It looks like we get a bit of slow-mo to add to the menace. Heli R on the far right with a killer swagger. Mark S, the determined department chief, in the lead. Irv is following his chief because he knows they're going to O&D, but you can see the reservation in his eyes. Dylan, he's always up for just about anything. While we're watching the strut, a word about how this is being shot. In their Vanity Fair interview, Ben Stiller and Jessica Lee Gagne discussed Dolly versus Steadicam in the hallways. Both said they made it a rule to not use Steadicam because of the difference in the feel of the two kinds of shots. A Steadicam is a rig worn by the cameraman. It's made up of counterweights and fluid hinges. The Steadicam allows the operator to sort of flow the camera around a scene as they move. The camera essentially becomes an extension of the cameraman when it's mounted on a Steadicam rig. If you've ever watched two performers walk downstairs with a leading shot or a follow shot or maybe a shot that goes all the way around them on the steps, you're probably looking at Steadicam footage. Steadicam is smooth and cool, but it also has more of a natural, organic feel to the footage than what you get from a dolly. Gagne said she wanted only dolly shots on the severed floor because it looked more like security footage. Dolly shots are robotic, solid, and precise with no up and down or sideways movement. Steadicam has more of an alive feel to it. Towards the end of the season, during the finale especially, the action got to be too fast-paced and frenetic to be captured with a dolly. They had to go to Steadicam on some shots. The situation just demanded it. Ben Stiller said even though he hates Steadicam, he sometimes has to embrace what he hates. Except for those rare late-season instances, everything we've ever seen shot in the halls was shot using a dolly. As the four strut towards O&D, there's a cut to Cobell in her office. Something on her computer monitor has caught her attention. My money is on those badass macrodats. Mill check. I'm on it. The refiners enter the front area of O&D. Bert takes them to the back room where the rest of the gang is working hard on those 3D printers. Helly is the first to enter the back room. She looks shocked. This is more people than I've ever seen. Odd to think about, but true. Helly R, the innie, knows six people. The three other macrodats, Milchik Cobell and Ms. Casey. She's seen Grainer, but doesn't really know him. So there are seven total people in her entire world. There are eight or nine people in this room. Mark is just as bowled over by the huge crowd. Uh, same. Dylan isn't going to let on. He's intimidated, but this also has to be the most people he's ever seen. Bert addresses the group of O&D folks. It's okay. I know change can be disorienting, but MDR is here now. Bert says MDR is welcome here, just as he hopes O&D will be welcome if they ever visit MDR. We get close-ups of some of the O&D workers, but no credit anywhere on IMDb for the non-speakers. A quick aside about getting paid and credited as an actor. If you're a day player like these folks who've been placed on the O&D production floor, you get paid based on how much you speak. If you don't speak at all, you get a base rate of pay called a day rate, and you don't get any credit in the show. You also don't get any residuals, which is the most important part of getting credited. Remember, being an uncredited day player is how John Turturro started out when he appeared in Raging Bull. IMDb has made it possible for these uncredited day players to go in and add themselves to a cast list where they appeared. 
None of these O&D folks seem to have done that. We do get one credit out of this group of O&D workers because she speaks. The first level above non-speaking is one to five lines. Bird opens it up to questions from the floor. A young lady working on one of the 3D printers and holding a watering can speaks up. So it's called macrodata refinement? What do you refine? This is Rachel Addington, and she got a line. Rachel's playing the character of Elizabeth. We also saw her in The UUR and Grim Barbarity, but she didn't say anything. She'll be back once more in Defiant Jazz. Rachel has eight total credits on her IMDb profile. Five of those are short. She made an appearance in an episode of a TV series in 2015, and she was in a TV movie in 2016. As for Elizabeth's question, Mark stammers. Irv changes the subject. Is that a watering can? Yeah, it's pretty obviously a watering can, but how do any of them know what a watering can is? Felicia is visibly upset that a macrodat would question the work of O&D. Bert steps in. We think it might be supplies for the executive wing upstairs. He mentions how last week's production run seemed more aggressive. Elizabeth jumps on this. Hatchets weren't aggressive. Felicia shushes her. Hatchets do seem kind of aggressive. Helly's worried hearing about hatchets on the heels of Dylan's comment about O&D making clubs to kill baby goats. When it comes to workplace hardware, O&D is leaving MDR in the dust. A full-sized floor-standing 3D printer like what O&D has at every workstation can be pretty pricey. Capabilities vary widely, but a 3D printer this size is going to run somewhere around 100000 per unit. The King's 600 Pro Industrial 3D Printer for Rapid Prototyping is $98,000 from Project 3D Printers. If you're interested, they also have free shipping. I do think these are Lumen brand 3D printers, so I'm betting O&D got a discount. Mark doesn't seem to be bothered by public speaking, even if this is more people than he's ever seen. He says they want to work together to try to figure this place out. He mentioned finding an apartment the opposite way from here, where they are, well, he doesn't want to sound crazy, but where they're... Well, raising baby goats. This one catches Bert by surprise. Raising baby goats. What's with the heli reaction shot here? Bert says there's a lot that's unknown about this place, but they keep plugging along. It's important work, obviously. Irv feels compelled to echo this sentiment. Everything we do here is important. This is what they've been told their entire work life, or as any's, their entire life. Not only is the work important, but also mysterious, and you don't question it. Helly, of course has no problem questioning it. It's important because it actually is or because you're saying it is. There's an uncomfortable silence. We hear someone clear their throat, possibly Mark, who decides we need to get off this particular topic. Maybe we should work together on this. Felicia wants to know what exactly this is. Maybe figuring out why there are baby goats? I'd be up for that too. Mark says they could be finding out how big this place is, or even how many severed floor workers there really are. I mean, why won't they tell us what we're doing here? What what are they so afraid of? Bert is fixing Mark with a hard stare. It's difficult to tell where he falls when it comes to these radical ideas. Mark is a little like Martin Luther, searching for enlightenment while hammering his theses on the door of O&D. If the Egan philosophy is illumination above all... Illumination beyond all, but yes. 
then why doesn't that include us? Why are we down here still working in the dark? That was powerful. That was impassioned. That was poetic as shit, man. Yeah, that too. There's a bit of a tense silence after he finishes. Bert breaks the silence. Mark is right. He is. He is. No surprise, if Bert's on board, Irv's on board. Bert, a well-studied acolyte of Kier, explains his reasoning. Irving, Kier would want us to feel the warm embrace of knowledge and truth. That way we could be true partners in his teachings. As Bert is talking, Dylan is ambling along behind the 3D printers. He did this same kind of a snooping pass when he and Irv made their visit the other day. It's how he found the reverse of the Grim Barbarity painting. Mark looks at Bert with a touch of newfound respect. Exactly. Bert continues. He says, as the two department chiefs... Mark and I should make contact with this goat department. See what they know. Dylan is snooping on a side table. He finds stacks of laminated pictograph cards. They look like elementary school flashcards, but the content seems to be visual instructions for hand-to-hand combat. Each one shows a man in a blue dress shirt making some kind of offensive fighting move against another man who's wearing a green dress shirt. These might be the more aggressive items Bert mentioned. Red arrows on the cards indicate movement, much like the arrows you'd see if you were to look through a sign language book. Sign books use arrows like these to indicate hand movement. All of the cards are depicting a violent fighting move. We see a total of six of these cards, and they seem to get progressively more violent. The one in the lower right is the worst. The man in the green shirt is lying flat on his back. He's been overpowered by the move shown on the other cards. The man in the blue shirt is kneeling over him with his hands around his throat. As Dylan is snooping and Bert is talking, the meeting is interrupted by the sound of the door opening. Cut to a close-up of an unsmiling Milchik as he enters the O&D workroom. I love this shot. As Milchik Tremel Tillman keeps his hair perfectly coiffed in a tight 70s-looking afro. This is far from Tremel Tillman's usual look. It's all part of the button-down, ready-for-anything nature of the Milchik character. In this shot, we are directly behind Milchik's head. It is in the lower center of the shot, and it is almost perfectly round. The O&D work area stretches well into the distance. Everyone has turned to look. We can see eight blue coats plus the four refiners. Dylan is standing down behind Felicia near where he found the flashcard. He stepped out from behind the 3D printers when he heard the door. No one says a word. Cut to a POV from behind Mark. Milchik is giving him a look of reproach, like a stern father who's found his wayward children doing something very wrong. It was just earlier today when Cobell nixed the hallway privileges. Bert glances from Milchik to Mark. Cut to a close-up of Dylan, who slips the card he found in his back pocket. That was poetic as shit, man. The swagger is gone as we follow the Macrodats back to MDR. A silent Milchik is leading the way. Mark tries to defend the unit. Not children, Mr. Milchik. We didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, but you kind of did. Cobell said no hallway privileges, and the first thing you do is head out into the hallway. Sure, maybe it's not fair, but it was wrong. Milchik doesn't respond as he continues walking briskly. The reverse angle reveals the opening to the MDR area. Standing centered in the room is Cobell. 
Patricia Arquette is not a large or imposing woman, but damn, does she come across as scary standing there. Her hands are clasped in front of her. Before Cobell starts to sing, and yes, she's going to sing, let's listen a moment to the silence. Sound designer Jacob Ribikoff said they wanted to do something weird with the ambient noise. All rooms, especially a big open workspace like this one, have their own low-level ambient sound. It might be the HVAC running in the background or the whir of fans in the computers, maybe some soft beeps of equipment. No room is truly silent unless it's a studio that has intentionally been silenced. Foley artists have to add the ambience back into room scenes because shooting mics don't catch it. Ribikoff said as the season progressed, they began to use human breath sounds slowed down and mixed into the ambient background of the hallways and MDR room. The breath sounds add to the overall creepiness without the viewer really knowing why. He said they added them in slowly because Ben and Dan thought it was cool, but too much to do all at once in the first episode. Listening to this scene on headphones, I think I'm starting to hear some of that weird ambience. Cobell doesn't say a thing to her wayward refiners. Instead, she launches into an anthem about, well, I bet you can guess. Keer, chosen one, key. Key, brilliant one, key. Think about the table read on this script. Oh, by the way, Patricia, you're going to be singing a song we made up. You'll be singing a cappella in the middle of the MDR space. So you'll have to learn both the lyrics and the tune, then sing it in front of the entire cast. You cool with that? I guess she was. Brings the bounty to the plain, through the torment, through the rains. You'd think she'd been singing this song her whole life, which Cobell most likely has. Progress, knowledge, show no fear. I thought she lost it at the end, but she brings it home. Here, chosen one, here. This tune might sound familiar to you. Back in the cold open, when Cobell was kneeling before her Kier shrine, we got the musical signature of this Kier anthem. Listen to the music in the background. Tame in me the tempers for that I may serve thee evermore. Place in me the values nine, that I may feel thy touch divine. This is not some tune Patricia Arquette made up. It's an actual produced piece of music, which makes her singing it even more of a challenge. I was curious, is Patricia Arquette a singer? Has she ever done any singing professionally? Well, the answer is yes. Once. In 2001, she was in an odd little Charlie Kaufman written comedy called Human Nature. On the soundtrack, Patricia Arquette is credited with singing two songs, Hair Everywhere and Here With You. Rippling in the sun, long as you're here with 
There's silence after Cobell finishes her hymn to Kier. The Macrodats look flustered. Cobell is just flat out mad. She lays down some of her best mom guilt. I trusted you, and you abused that trust. She says their inefficiency and free-range chicken roaming is their responsibility. A smiling Grainer enters the scene. No, he's not smiling. Are you kidding? Just checking to see if you're listening. Escort him to the break room. Mark stares down Cobell as Grainer moves towards him. Some combination of Rickon's book and Helly's presence has caused Mark to grow a backbone. Mark turns and heads out of the room as the others look on. In the hallway, Mark is striding along ahead of Grainer. I want you to take notice of a detail here, and it's a tiny thing. Adam Scott wears his hair fairly long. It's usually blocked off in the back. Here, as they walk, you can see his hair is completely down over the white collar of his shirt. Tuck that detail away. We'll get back to it in a minute. Grainer inserts his keycard when they arrive at the break room door. A close-up really points out Grainer's keycard is black. It's not the blue or green we've seen in the departments. Mark heads through the door and down the narrow break room hallway. Grainer, as usual, doesn't even look into the hallway as he pulls the door closed. We cut to the interior of the narrow, dark break room hallway. Mark's standing just inside the door, stealing himself, getting ready to make that walk. At the other end of the hall, we see Ms. Casey. She is also just entering the hall, coming through the far door, the actual door to the break room. Mark and Ms. Casey begin walking towards each other. Ms. Casey has the defeated, hollow-eyed look of a recent break room attendee. I wonder who was conducting her session. Mark and Ms. Casey meet in the middle. I'm sorry. They are forced to turn sideways as they pass each other in the narrow hallway. Ben Stiller said this scene was added much later. They felt like they needed to put Mark and Gemma face-to-face at least one more time. Everything matches up almost perfectly, but check Adam Scott's hair. In the back, it's now above his collar, a good half inch or more shorter than it was in the hall, and it's been neatened up in the part. Somewhere between when he was in the outer hall with Grainer and here passing by Ms. Casey, I think Mark got a trim. There is a close-up of Mark's hand about to open the break room door. Cut to Mark's hand on a tablecloth at the base of a glass, only now the backs of his knuckles at the base of his fingers are red. Something physical seems to have happened in the break room this time. Alexa noticed it. What happened to your hand? Mark says he jammed his hand doing something with the water cooler. Or at least that's what they tell me. Whoever's writing these excuses needs to come up with some different scenarios. Lumen seems to use the water cooler mishap excuse a lot. Peggy Kay from the Lexington Letter said her wet hair was blamed on a water cooler incident. Oh, and hey, would you look at that? Alexa did give Mark another chance. Devin was right. They are once again out for dinner. I didn't mention it before, but the restaurant we're in for this date and the last time they went out is the Hudson House. The Hudson House is a rustic chic eatery in Nyack, New York. It's located in the former Village Hall and Jailhouse. Nyack is a quaint but busy Victorian village located on the Hudson River about 25 miles north of Manhattan. 
The waiter does a drink check. Alexa is having Merlot. Mark says he's good with water. Wow, Mark is not drinking this evening. Good choice, Mark. It did cause a lot of trouble last time. Have you uh, seen the princess? Alexa has not. She says she did talk with Devin about a problem Devin was having. Latching difficulties. <laughs> yes. I'm aware. Alexa says she provided some names of lactation consultants. The baby talk has an effect on the conversation. Uh, did, did you ever think about having kids? With Gemma? This is heavy territory for a first date part two. Mark said they tried, but it didn't work. They even talked about adopting. This leads Mark into Gemma's stories. He catches himself. Is it weird that I'm talking about her right now? Alexa's good with it. She thinks it's healthy. Mark thinks it's a strange topic while on a date. I haven't walked out on you yet. Eh, Good point. These two have such a great chemistry together. It's a lot of fun just watching the conversation. Alexa says Gemma is a part of Mark. You know, you can't just separate yourself. Oh, no, but you can, oh. Alexa. Oh, shit. With this exciting new procedure. Look right into that. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> they have a good laugh over this. We cut to the exterior of Beer House, and might I say, holy crap, what a gorgeous house. As dumb as Rickon's books might be, they do seem to pay the bills. Inside, by the fire, next to a steaming cup of probably coffee, Devin is doing a little spying on her baby buddy. She finds an article that first appeared in Cure Life magazine about the senator and his young family. Arteta is in his second term. It looks like he really boosted his political fortunes by coming out in favor of legalized severance. Lumen became a major contributor, and he won re-election by an even bigger margin, what Cure Life called a landslide. She clicks on a Cure Chronicle article detailing Arteta's severance support. An article from two years ago quotes him as saying, Severance is a game changer for society. Surely Devin is getting it now. The richest lady in baby camp was an innie activated to endure the pain of childbirth, then shut off until the next painful ordeal Gabby Arteta wants to skip. Rickon interrupts the research session. Love? Yeah. She's here. Yeah. Devin closes the laptop and steps over to the bassinet in the corner of the room. Rickon is ushering their guest into the study. Hold on. Is it? It can't be. Ah, you must be Devin. Devin, this is Mrs. Selvig. Not only is she Cobell running things down on the severed floor, she's also Mrs. Selvig, proprietor of some basalts and oil shop. Now we find she's also a lactation consultant. They know she's Mark's neighbor, and it kind of sounds like Mark recommended her. Think about that for a minute. How did that conversation happen? The kelp worked, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I can see Mrs. S getting the latching difficulty details out of Mark. Hey, check the desk behind Selvig. More goats. To the left end is what looks like a goat head or at least a goat skull sitting on some kind of a wire mount. It almost looks like it's floating in front of the window. Before we get into this lactation consultant interview, I want to touch on a couple of theories about why we find Cobell doing this. First, and the one I least subscribe to, she wants to use it as a way to control Mark. It seems way too messy for Cobell. So this theory says by somehow threatening his niece, she can make Mark do something. 
I don't buy it. Cobell seems to be far more effective as the pushy neighbor-slash-basalt-store-owner-slash-lactation consultant. She seems to be able to get Mark to do whatever she wants without destroying her relationship with him. Threatening the baby would definitely kill the relationship. The other theory floating around out there, and the one I can more get on board with, Rickon has Egan roots. We don't know anything about Rickon Laszlo Hale, but he is living and working in this town, controlled by both Cure and Lumen. Why is he here? What if Rickon is some relation, maybe a grandson of Ambrose Egan, the black sheep? Somehow the Ambrose line of the family was disgraced. His descendants may have changed the family name, but even with another name, they are still Egan's. Rickon doesn't seem to be the CEO type, but perhaps Cobell sees this baby as a descendant of the CEO line and a potential heir to the Egan throne. Cobell wants to make sure the baby is given the best possible care, and she most likely wants to raise the baby steeped in the lore of Kier. This seems more plausible to me than possible kidnapping or baby hostage taking. A quick note, check the warmth of the lighting in this scene. Cinematographer Jessica Lee Gagne said she used tungsten in all of the beer house scenes because she was wanting warmer tones. The outside world has cold blue filters and the below ground world of the innies is stark white lights. Lactation consultants are recognized as healthcare professionals. They can be found in hospitals, midwife practices, public health programs, and even in private practice. There is a governing body, the International Board of Lactation Consultant Examiners certifies lactation consultants from around the world who meet their criteria and have passed an exam. No word if Selvig is certified by the IBLCE. Hello, little Eleanor. Selvig is no nonsense. She's ready to talk nursing position. She even whips out a tube from her tunic. Shea butter salve for your nipples. Ooh. Oh, it's on the house. If this is an act, she's pretty convincing. Rickon reminds her they're talking to a few other candidates. The baby gets fussy. Oh, darling. Shh. There, 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 there. Selvig calms it by singing and swaying. It's hard to imagine this is the same woman who canceled hallway privileges and sang an anthem to Kier mere hours ago. We serve Kier! The most disorienting and unnerving cut in the whole series happens as Selvig is softly singing. Suddenly we're looking at video with scan lines. It's 2D animation. It looks like a lightning bolt slicing a cloud in half. Huh? There are no clues as to what we're looking at. We cut away from the standard deaf TV screen to a close-up of a very young boy, possibly preschool, with a curly mop of brown hair. It takes a minute to key in on it, but he's saying numbers. In the closed captioning, he's saying things like 7002, 7043. Any ideas yet? Just what the heck is happening here? Then we cut to Dylan. But it's not Dylan. It only takes a literal second to see this is not Dylan. Then, bam, we hear an isolated version of the elevator transition. And the Zolly effect happens. 
we are most certainly not on the elevator. It looks like we're in a closet. When the effect happens, suddenly it is Dylan. What the heck is going on here? Before we find out, let's talk for a minute about the sound we just heard. This is the severance transition sound we normally hear in the elevator. It's a layered confection of cool sounds, courtesy of Jacob Ribikoff and the Foley artists on severance. Ribikoff describes this as moving from a regular elevator sound into one that he pitched and swirled to make it sound otherworldly. Then, in the middle of each transition, there's a static crackle mixed with a very high-pitched beep, and it's finished off with the lumen sound and the final elevator ding. That lumen sound is not layered in over the music. Theodore Shapiro actually created it as part of the score. Ben Stiller uses it repeatedly to underscore a cut he calls a fritz. It took a little digging, but I discovered the history of the fritz cut. Austrian film pioneer Fritz Lang is credited with creating the fritz cut. His original intent was to create a transition from a light scene to a dark scene. There are 24 frames of film in a second. Fritz would take four frames of the light scene, then cut four frames of the dark scene, then four of the light, four of the dark. The final effect would be a strobing stutter. The sound Theodore Shapiro created is the perfect audio for a Fritz cut. Refiners, for the record, Zach Cherry rocks. For one second, we see Audi Dillon looking like a guy who sat three rows in front of you at the PTA meeting. The zolly and sound effect happens, and suddenly, we're looking at any Dillon. This scene is happening in a closet, most likely Audi Dillon's closet. Reverse cut to Milchik. Milchik is sitting in the closet with Dillon. When we cut to him, his phone is up by his ear like he was just talking to somebody. Dillon. Some Redditors commenting on this episode were horrified to think of Milchik in Dylan's house. He's the enemy. Well, not to the Audis. Think about Milchik's relationship with the unsevered Heli R. He's the comforting guide through the process. He's the one answering their questions and meeting them with flowers at the end of the day. Okay, so maybe he didn't meet Dylan with flowers, but I'd bet he has a good relationship with all of the Audis in his department. Think about Mark's sick call. Milchik was caring, friendly, and concerned. You feel better, okay, Mr. Scout? An after-hours visit like this would be unusual, but I can see Audi Dillon welcoming Milchik into his home. I'm sure he was a bit less excited to find out they were going to meet in the closet. As soon as any Dillon is present, Milchik gets deadly serious. I've awoken you at home. I need to know where you put it. Are you hearing the heartbeat? Listen for it in the background to this scene. It really heightens the tension. Dylan is distracted by the contents of the closet. Where I put what? The thing he pocketed at O&D. Milchik calls it an ideographic card. The term ideographic refers to something using a symbol as a description without a word or sound. Milchik saw the footage of Dylan taking it, but he doesn't know where it went. Did you smuggle it out? Is it here? We get a longer shot with a bit of a down angle. Dylan is freaking about the closet. Holy shit, is this my house? Milchik tries to get him to focus. He says the card was sensitive information. Someone paid you to smuggle out that card. No, nothing like that. Dylan doesn't even hesitate. He says he stuck it behind one of the toilets. I didn't even know what it was. That's fine, too. The kid we met a few minutes ago comes bursting through the closet door. 
he throws his arms around a very confused Annie Dillon. Daddy! Milchik roughly grabs the kid by the shoulder. We told you to count to a thousand and wait outside. Um, we? Well, maybe he means himself and Dillon. I also doubt this kid can count to ten without a little help. He's young. Is that my kid? Uh-oh. Milchik grabs his phone. End it. There's a cut to what looks like a gloved hand holding a large toggle switch. The word on is currently lit green. The hand releases the switch. There's a hard mechanical switching sound. The on light goes to yellow. In the closet, the dolly zoom reverses. And we are back to Audi Dillon. Audi Dillon knows his kid, hugs his kid, has no idea Milchik was just roughing up his kid. He stands looking at Milchik. We good here? I doubt he knows he was even switched. There's no sense of the passage of time. I'm sure Seth had some cover for the Audi as to why he needed to talk to him in the closet. Milchik's tone is friendlier to Audi Dillon. We're good. This, dear refiners, is the moment. It wasn't when Petey contacted Audi Mark or when Bert met Irv or even when they found Rickon's book. No, this is the moment that directly leads us to the season finale. Dylan being awakened at home, then meeting his kid, changed everything. Oh, and Dylan's kid is being played by Blaze James Gorman. No bio info on Blaze, but this is his very first IMDb profile credit. Since his appearance on Severance, he's also had a two-episode run on a kid's show called Sprung. Cut to a long shot of the chilly streets of Kier. Mark and Alexis seem to be the only two out and about. It sounds like Mark's ready to wind down the date. Should we... should probably call our cars? Alexa might be a bit disappointed. Yeah. As they're talking, Mark somehow recognizes Petey's daughter in a handbill posted on the wall behind them. That's June. He met her once. The poster is in a sea of other band promo sheets, and he's identifying her from a black and white copy of a picture. Mark has some amazing powers of observation. He also realizes the date on the poster. Hey, um, this is tonight, like right now. Should, should we go to this, maybe? Mark brings Alexa up to speed. He says he kind of knows one of the band members. He promises if it's lame, they'll leave. You mean if it isn't as cool as we are? Exactly. Yeah, it looks like anybody over the age of 30 is going to get the side eye at this party. We cut to a stage set up in an alley where a band is performing. A word of warning, refiners, this scene is the very definition of explicit. Uh, I am feeling very old right now. No, you totally fit in. Don't worry about it. The crowd in the alley has a lot of spiked hair and leather, a lot of piercings. This gathering has the feel of a punk rave from the late 1970s or early 80s. The music sounds like speed metal or punk. The band we're listening to in the world of Kier is called Fisherman. That's Fisher, F-I-S-S-U-R-E, as in a crack, like split in two, maybe? The band Fisherman is being played in the episode by the real-life New York City band Dollhouse. Dollhouse was formed in 2019. They have a sound described as a grimy take on classic hardcore punk. The lead singer is Michael Cayazzo. In a review of the band, I found a great description of his vocal style. They said, quote, Cayazzo sings everything in a desperate, nasal, vaguely sarcastic bleat. 
Dollhouse released a four-song EP in March of 2021 called The First Day of Spring. Fisherman is encoring with their most popular anthem, a little ditty called Fuck You, Lumen. Cassidy Layton is back as June Kilmer, only with her hair slicked back and some white pancake on her face. She's on bass instead of guitar tonight. The actual bassist for Dollhouse is the blonde to the right of the singer. Her name is Margaret Chartier, also known as noise artist Pharmacon. The guy on the guitar is Ty Miller, and that's Charles Henry Wood, formerly of Hank Wood and the Hammerheads, on drums. A number of birds are flown by the crowd as a salute to the chorus. Mark tries to pull out his phone for a quick video. He is promptly told that's a no-no. You're filming yourself? Sure, thank you. Probably wouldn't want video of this particular tune getting back to the home office. The guy protecting the band is being played by American actor Jonathan Iglesias. He has 40 IMDb profile credits in the last 10 years. Mark is into it. He starts to shout along on the chorus. Uh, Alexa looks surprised for a second, then quickly smiles, and she starts to shout along too. Fuck you, Lumen! I hate you, Lumen! So, not a lot of love lost for the company in this company town. Mark and Alexa hang around for another beer after the set. June passes by, and Mark says... Hi. Uh, hey, I'm, uh the guy from work. It's awkward. Mark introduces Alexa. Hey, you guys are really good. No. June's being all dark and pissed. She says they probably suck. Mark mentions how much he liked that last song. Right, what you know, right? Yeah. Mark says her dad would have liked it. Eh, probably shouldn't be going there, Mark. How the fuck would you even know that? Well, it's a long story, and part of it involves him spending a night in Mark's basement. A bottle breaks. Suddenly, there's a fight in the alley. Yeah. Mark and Alexa get out of there. June heads back towards the stage. Away from the fray, somewhere on the streets of Kier, Mark tries to explain about June. She's the daughter of uh, someone I worked with. He died. And it's... Mark starts to say it's been difficult to piece together, but he's interrupted by a kiss. Alexa has had enough with the talking. It's time for some smooching. There's a great framing choice on the kiss. The building they're near fills two-thirds of the screen as a black box. The kissing couple is revealed in the left-hand third of the screen. It echoes the framing used around the diamond desk in MDR. Good for Alexa. These two make a great couple, and this is the only connection Mark has in his life besides Devin. Remember the shot looking through the hole in Petey's head? We cut to a similar shot of Grainer, only this time we're looking at him through a peephole. He knocks and waits. When the door opens, we see his reaction. Harmony. Wow, folks are being bothered at home tonight all over Kier. 
The reverse reveals Cobell, still dressed in the nurse's tunic she was wearing for the interview. It's covered with cartoon drawings of unicorns, rainbows, and maybe bunnies. I, I really didn't see any goats. Cobell asks if he found her, meaning this mysterious Ragabi who may have reversed severance. I got a tip from a campus cop against college. I think Grainer's a retired cop. I'm betting he gave up public service to make some real money in the private sector. He's trying to stay professional, but he's very distracted by Cobell's outfit. What the fuck are you wearing? Cobell says she was doing some private research. The tone is none of your business. Grainer won't let it go. What's that a euphemism for? Cobell's done with this. In her most threatening rasp, she asks what part of this conversation couldn't have happened on the phone. Someone's holed up in one of Gans's old lamp buildings. The teens told security to look the other way. They agree this must be Ragabi. Grainer wants to make a field trip out of it. Hey, Harmony, want to join him? No, I do not. So Ragabi is in tight enough with the administration at Gans College to get special treatment. This is also the college where Mark used to teach history and Gemma taught Russian literature. How is Gans College tied into the whole Lumen mystery? Cabell tells Grainer to let her know when he has Ragabi. Harmony is ready to end the conversation, but Grainer is Mr. Chatty. Oh, maintenance is installing tonight. I think it's a good call. Installing what? An espresso machine? Grainer's eyes wandered down to the tunic. So, you're like a nurse or something? Conversation over. Cobell purses her lips and slams the door in his face. Cut to Mark, in bed, hair tousled, but he can't sleep. A vision of Petey collapsing at the gas station flashes through his brain. When he sits up, we see Alexa is sleeping next to him. First date part two seems to have gone much better than part one. Mark is still haunted by Petey's telltale heart. Cut to the trash bins. Mark is outside at night retrieving the phone and battery. Mrs. Selvig's white rabbit is visible in the next driveway. I have some big issues with this scene. First, why are the trash bins out but nobody took the trash? The bins normally sit back by the fence. We established in episode one when the bins are out here in their little presentation area, it's because it's trash day. I don't understand making the bins such a huge part of the first episode's story, only to abandon everything we learned about the bins just to allow Mark to now retrieve the phone and battery. Also, he's rummaging through his trash bin 12 feet from Cobell's door. How is she not hearing or seeing this? She told Grainer she'd had a long day, but I don't see Harmony doing a lot of heavy sleeping. Yes, Mark has to take this call to advance the story. But in a world where so much attention is paid to the tiniest detail, they should respect the bins. As he rummages, Mark glances up at his own windows. We get a POV shot from there. He also looks at Selvig's place. It seems quiet. Mark puts the battery back in the phone and voila! It not only comes on, it immediately starts ringing. It's another one of those calls from Blocked. There's a great down angle shot from across the street. Mark is a silhouette against the snow in his front yard as he answers. Hello? Who is this? He stammers, then finally decides to identify himself as a friend of Petey's. There's a long pause. Is this Mark Scout? Mark whips around to check the street. Is this voice somehow watching him? What did he tell you before he died? Nothing. 
He stammers a bit, saying he wants to understand. Can you meet me now? It sounds like Mark is going to take the same field trip as Grainer. Cut to a ground-level look at the Lumen building at night. A single white panel van with a Lumen Industries logo on the door is sitting dead center in the middle of the front steps. Didn't Lumen spring for a loading dock, maybe a service entrance? Nah, we'll let the service guys hold stuff right through the front doors. It does make for a cool shot, but I don't think you can point a camera at this building and not get a cool shot. There's a slow dolly move through the halls coming around the corner to the MDR entrance. Two guys in blue jumpsuits are working on the door. This starts a montage where we are following three different sets of action. Mark is going to Gans College. Grainer is also going to Gans College. And the two guys in jumpsuits who get no credit are installing an electronic door. The timeline is a little jagged for me on this sequence. Mark and Grainer seem to arrive at Gans College at roughly the same time. Mark left after Grainer, and probably by quite a bit. We don't know how long he slept or when he was rummaging in the bins, but it was definitely after Grainer's visit to Cobell. And they were both leaving from the same place. Grainer must have stopped off for a piece of pie and a cup of coffee at Pips before he headed to Gans College. Both Grainer and Mark are walking through a heavy rain on the Gans campus. The guys at MDR test the new door with a key card. It looks pretty imposing. There's a long shot of a figure in a concrete structure on the campus. Are you alone? Mark jumps and turns. It's a good thing she's friendly or he'd be in trouble right now. Yeah, it's just me. Mark says he used to teach at this school. I know. And so did his dead wife. Does she also know that? Mark wants to know who he's talking to. I'd say it's Rigabi, but he couldn't know that. Instead of answering, she decides this isn't the best place to be having this conversation. Come with me. Mark hesitates, looks around, and the credits roll. Will he follow? Will Grainer find them both? You'll have to wait until next time, refiners, because for now, we're done. And congratulations. Even with all of your adventures in the halls, this file is now at 100%. I'm sorry about the new door, but this is what happens when you don't listen to your superiors. The next time we gather, refiners, put on your dancing shoes. We'll be getting down with some defiant jazz. For now, it's time to shut down your workstations and leave for the day. As always, make sure to stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate Severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.